have any idea what you just did? You just bet against the American economy. Ding-a-ling-a-ling, we're feeling the sting, afraid to come out when the opening bell rings. Losses upon losses, stocks getting tossed like old socks in the hamper. Nothing seems to damper this sour sentiment. We need a breath mint, refresh and reprise. A three-quarter point rise in the Fed funds rate. Bears are at the gate, hungry for the risky. No time to get frisky when the recession's this near. Oh my, oh dear, anxiety, fear. Animal spirits are here. But we know what to do when the going gets rough, when the tracks get steep and that time get tough. Focus on what we know, control what we can, re-examine our positions, take our head out the sand, realign our portfolios, put them through a stress test. We ride through this together on the Investopedia Express. It's reality check time, and we are opening the holiday shortened trading week in a bear market in the S&P 500 after U.S. stocks had their worst week last week since March of 2020. The Federal Reserve hiked the federal funds rate by three quarters of a percent last week as it tries to cool inflation. I know, I said that would be out of character and off script on last week's podcast, so you know the situation is pretty serious and the Federal Reserve does not have inflation under control. No central bank does, for that matter. Investors took the news in stride on Wednesday, but then decided they didn't like the taste of that medicine at all, and they sold stocks hard on Thursday. Inside the FOMC's decision and press release, a big reduction in the Fed's growth predictions for 2022, a rise in its projections for where the federal funds rate will be at the end of the year, and an increase in its inflation estimates. On the former, the members of the Federal Open Market Committee, the FOMC, dropped 2022 GDP estimates from 2.8% to 1.7%. That's a pretty big drop. The committee then jacked up projections for the Fed funds rate from 1.9% at the end of the year, that was the prediction in March, to 3.4%, the new prediction. That's more than a doubling of where interest rates stand today. As for inflation estimates, which the Fed measures using the PCE, the Personal Consumption Expenditures Index, the committee sees that rising from its 4.1% projection in March to 4.3% by the end of the year. Add it up, slowing growth, higher interest rates, and more inflation. Here's Fed Chair Powell at the FOMC press conference last Wednesday. It's, it's an incredibly unpopular thing, and, and it's very painful for people. So, I, But I, I guess what I'm saying is the question, really critical question from the perspective of doing our job is making sure that the public does have confidence that we have the tools and we'll use them and they do work to bring inflation back down over time. It, it will take some time, we think, to get inflation back down, but we will do that. Whatever it takes, and it's going to take aggressive interest rate hikes to get to what the Fed calls a normal rate environment, 3.4%, which means we may very well see another 75 basis point hike at the Fed's next meeting in July. While that 3.4% may be normal if you look at the last 50 years, it is not normal when you look at the past decade, which has been characterized by accommodative monetary policy via low interest rates and low inflation, well under 2%. This is new terrain for a lot of investors. The new recipe is not particularly tasty for stocks, especially growth stocks. That's why the NASDAQ is deep in the bear den, down 32% from its recent all-time highs. Consumers are already feeling the impact of these rising rates. The 30 year fixed mortgage now above 6%. That's up 50% in just six months. The average credit card APR, 16.7%. That's up a lot just since March. And the average rate on a new car loan, 5.8%. And used car loans, 8.46%. Everything is going to cost more to finance. And that is leading to demand destruction, our term of the week from just a few weeks back. 
Existing home sales have been sliding for the past five months. Retail sales are starting to wane. Car sales are slowing. Future travel bookings are cooling. All the while, consumer debt is increasing. Credit card balances are growing and the personal savings rate is falling. All that good wage growth is being eaten alive by inflation. And it's smelling more and more like a recession is either heading our way or already here. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, Fed Chair Powell, and President Biden were out there last week promising that a recession isn't inevitable and they'll do whatever they can to prevent it. But what can they do besides raising rates? Ideas about suspending the 18 cents a gallon federal gas tax are being bandied about, but that won't amount to much and it would take money out of the highway infrastructure budget. The thing about recessions, though, is that we don't really know we're in one until it's already in the rearview mirror. The National Bureau of Economic Research, NBER, is the group that labels recessions. Remember, though, by the time the NBER makes a recession official, it's usually many months after the fact, and in many cases, the trough of the recession has already been reached. We always say that the stock market and the economy are not the same, and they are not, but occasionally they walk down the same path, especially during dynamic economic cycle changes. The stock market's forward-looking and trades on future expectations. Stocks are essentially a bet on the future growth and profitability of a company. So, as investors, we have to educate and ask ourselves, how long might this downturn last, how deep will it go, and what will be the impact of a doubling of interest rates from here, and can the Fed guide the economy to a so-called soft landing? For stock investors, it's a question about time, your time. The bad news is that bear markets last about nine and a half months on average, and the average drawdown is around 36%. The good news is that a year after a bear market, the S&P 500 is up an average of nearly 15% with a median gain of 23.8%. If you've got time to stay invested, this is the time to make sure your portfolio's foundation is sound, positioned to ride out the next year or so, and then poised to take advantage of the rebound. We have to be patient. Let's get set up for the week ahead, and it's a shortened trading week with markets closed Monday for the Juneteenth holiday, but the Fed is back in the frying pan on Wednesday as Chair Powell sits for his semi-annual testimony before Congress on monetary policy. He'll be asked about the probability of a recession, what he and the Fed could have done differently to prevent all of this, and what's its next move. We'll also get reports on new and existing home sales in the U.S. for the month of May. We know those high mortgage rates have cooled sales even though prices remain sky high and inventory remains tight in most major cities. On Friday, we'll get a new temperature check on the health of the U.S. consumer with the final reading of the University of Michigan's June Consumer Sentiment Index. The preliminary reading released last week showed consumer sentiment falling to another record low. You know the deal and the real feel of it all. Rising prices, particularly for gasoline and food, are hitting us where it hurts the most. It's particularly bad for folks living on a low or fixed income. We'll also get consumer sentiment updates for the Eurozone and the UK on Wednesday and Thursday, respectively. Don't expect a lot of corporate news this week as most companies are entering the so-called quiet period ahead of the end of the quarter on June 30th. Wow, that was fast. The Express is taking a hard left this week and climbing high into the Rocky Mountains. Our destination, the Food and Wine Classic in Aspen, Colorado. This high-class and high-spirited event has been hosted for 39 years by our partners at Food and Wine Magazine. Investopedia and Food and Wine are both part of the Dot Dash Meredith family of websites, and I was delighted to be invited to Aspen this year to host a conversation about investing in wine. I know, someone has to do it, and I took one for the team. But I really am fascinated by investing in alternative assets, and wine and spirits fall into that category. And full disclosure, I love good wine, great tequila, deep bourbons, 
and really good food. In short, I was perfectly cast for this assignment. A few things to know. The global wine market is worth about $350 billion. Not massive, but sizable. That's all the production, the vineyards, the labels, the distributors, the collectors, the restaurants, and you and me when we pick up a bottle of wine for dinner. It's a global market with Italy leading the way in production, where they produce about 4.25 million liters a year of wine. France, Spain, the United States, Australia, Argentina, China, and South Africa round out the top eight. As for consumption, well, Europe leads the way as well, and Portugal has the highest consumption of wine per capita, and they make delicious wines over there in Portugal. They consume about 51.9 liters per capita every year in Portugal. In France, they consume about 46.9. Then Italy, Switzerland, Austria, Australia, Germany, and Spain also round out the top eight. Wine has been around since about 6,000 BC, and recent archaeological research points to its origins in the Republic of Georgia in the ancient wine-growing region of Kakheti. Fast forward to today, and up here in the posh town of Aspen, Colorado, 5,000 people have come from all over the world to try new wines, eat fine fare, take seminars about food and wine, throw on cowboy boots and party like they are a mile high, and our pals of food and wine put on a first-class event. I led a seminar on investing in wine with three really smart people who know the industry from the ground up, and on the panel were Charles Anton, the auctioneer and head of wine auction sales at Zaki's, Eric Sagelbaum, the founder and principal of Sommelier, and Carlos Solorzano-Smith, the founder and manager partner of the Aspen Hospitality Group. These guys have been around wine their entire professional lives. I'm going to play some excerpts of that conversation, and we're going to post the entire one-hour chat as a bonus episode if you're a wine enthusiast and you want to learn more. I learned a lot. So I want to get into why invest in wine. Obviously, it's an asset class. Obviously, it does have value. Sometimes it goes up in value. But it doesn't walk and talk like a traditional capital markets asset class, like a stock, like a bond, like a cryptocurrency, thank God. But there are various reasons why, you know, folks might want to invest in wine. And we want to get in, I want to get into that. And then once we get into that, and I want you each to kind of weigh on on the reasons, pick a different reason if somebody picked one uh, ahead of you, the things to really watch out for and the things to pay attention to. And then we're going to go through some lists of things you absolutely have to know if you're going to try to invest in this asset class. So Charles, let's start with you. We've talked uh, ahead of this about you know, the, the dangers of investing one, the things that could go wrong, but the things you have to pay attention to, but most importantly, the expectations. So why don't you take us out with that? That's the first thing I always speak to everyone about when they think about investing in wine. I mean, when you invest in wine, there's a lot of things to think about. Number one, it's not something that, you know, like crypto or any of your other money that's on your phone and you can watch it go up and down. It's purely liquid. You can get rid of it when you want. I think that the majority of wines that I see that have done really well in the market are blue chips that you get and you hold for a long time, a long period. And there's a lot of costs associated with holding wines for a long, a long period. That's probably the first thing that I tell people is, what do you want to get out of this? Is this a hobby investment? Is this an investment where you're really going to consider putting a portion of your assets um, because it's sort of a a tertiary to your normal investments? You know, you really need to answer those questions because like any other investment in anything, whether it's any business or any anything really. You need to know what you're getting into and what you expect to get out of it. I think a lot of people are sort of see an ad or something that shows that the fine wine market has outpaced the S&P 500 by 2x. And you know that that is at best uh, misleading <laughs> and at worst a lie, I would say, um, because there's so many things that uh, go into investing in, in wine that you know, you're not necessarily told about. What else, guys? Yeah. Eric, why do, it, why do you think people, besides the fact that they find value, they enjoy it, What's important to know if you're thinking about investing in this asset class? So my biggest piece of advice, I do a lot of private seller investment management for wine. And my biggest piece of advice is plan to drink every bottle you're buying. And that's your investment is delicious wine. Because if you're doing this 
simply for like, okay, what percentage ROI can I make? You know, what's the curve? Where can I maximize, you know, sell it top of market? But wine isn't the thing for you. I guess we could make the point that gold comes in and out of fashion, but not as much as wine does. And because wine is very much something based on trend and based on opinion, it changes dramatically. So uh, I have some clients that are like, okay, so I want to buy Lafitte or whatever. And I want to, how, how long do I need to hold it until I can make 30% back on it? I'm like, I don't know. It depends what vintage, it depends what you paid for it. And it depends if we can find a buyer for you. So my number one piece of investment is if you're going to do it, plan to drink the wines or, or plan for those wines to move down in your family. So I do a lot of <coughs> legacy seller planning. So like, Hey, let's invest in this asset class because you love it. And maybe your kids will love it. And maybe it will be something incredibly valuable for your kids to either drink or sell. But if you're looking to invest in wine for short term, it's not like flipping houses. It's not the right strategy to be like, I want to buy and sell and within a, a short span. Right. If you want to make money, that's an investment in its own right though. Right. I mean, if you're investing, we were talking here about investing for financial return, but you know, investing in wine that will mature and develop with age is its own kind of investment. I mean, you're investing in your own pleasure sort of in that way. Right. So what there's the, the investing for taste. Right. There's the investing for collection, but there's the investing it, for estate. So Carlos, why else? But there's a romance about wine. Wine is not just a liquid in the bottle. It's actually, uh, it's something to enjoy among friends. And if you saw, I'm going to China, for example, the Chinese were actually bringing high-end bottles to drink to make a deal. That's happening in Silicon Valley all, all the time now. If a new up-and-coming company got sold, the founder who got a lot of money, now his next step is go into wine auction, get somebody who knows about wine, who teach them how to invest in wine, because the next deal is going to be done around the table with a really good bottle of wine. There might be the, the person who's going to buy the next company or the founder or the C-Money year birth. Where you got the bottle? Provenance. That's what the auction house does. And I think that rom- the romance doesn't have to take away of what the profits can come. Yeah, absolutely. There's the story. There's the experience, right? Wine does all of these things that a stock can't do necessarily. Bitcoin can't do necessarily. But there's also investing. And we're going to stick mostly with investing for collection, investing for value. But obviously, you can invest in the public markets, in wine companies. You could be a private equity investor in vineyards. You can own a piece of a vineyard. You can own. There's other ways to approach it. We're going to stick with the what to consider if you're actually thinking about turning this into an investment. And there's a lot of things to consider. You you talked about provenance, but what are the other key considerations as you consult with folks, Carlos, or as you help folks build potentially their own uh, sellers, what are some of the key considerations you're always talking about to your clients? Especially investing in wine, because I know it's always trying to, if you want to buy a wine, make sure if you can buy the the original wooden box or original box or the wooden case, it just brings more value to the wine. Buying futures. People might not be into paying something for, for bottles today and three years, but it's a really good investment. We pay $500 for a feed that we don't know in two or three years is going to be $1,000. So it, it increase in value very quick. And you get married, you do that. I would say always trying to figure out, find somebody who knows about wine, learn yourself about wine, and focus on, listen, this is a business. Get, get the best value you can. I mean, people forget about it. the internet is there. You Google a bottle, you see it, you go to a liquor store, you say, I'll pay $400, I can buy it, I can sell it for $800. We, people like us, that's what we do. We teach you, hey, this has a good value. I think uh, just trying to figure out, find somebody who knows and can help you to uh, get more profits from your investment. What everyone always asks me is, you know, what is the next? Google, what is the next Amazon, you know, uh, you know, Facebook, whatever. But the reality is much less sexy. I mean, the way as it is in investing in, you know, the stock market, for example, and what people who um, I advise on really long term investing, it's buy wines that have 
proven results, sometimes over the course of hundreds of years, some of these wineries. And you know, if you want to take a small portion of the money that you're thinking of investing in wine and have a few moonshots, you know, this might go up and might go down. But as Eric said, if it goes down, I'll drink it. I really yeah. enjoy the wine. That's fine. But you know, whatever you're investing in, uh, you know, some of it needs to be in something safe, something reassured. And as Carlos said, you know, you need to think of it a, a little bit like memorabilia or any other collectible. In that, you know, if you have Mouton Rothschild, Domaine de la Romane Conti, some of the most famous, valuable wines in the world. However, if you have one bottle, there's a lot less value to that than having the original case bound in the wood. You know where you got it from. You got it from a great source. It's been stored correctly all these years. I think there's. I think people think that one bottle of Mouton Rothschild, just to use that example, is equal to one twelfth of a case, and it's really not. Uh, it's really worth quite a bit less. And that comes a little bit back to what Eric was saying, which is what is your exit strategy for this? You know, we find it in my business, it's much, much easier for us to sell a $15,000 case of wine than to sell one $200 bottle of wine, um, just because that's what people want. And because people are in the same mindset as you buying it originally, they want to buy something that's in this original case, perfectly pristine. You know, it's almost in some ways in that respect. And remember these wooden boxes, we talk about the wine being this magical thing. The wooden box is just a piece of junk. That's something. I mean, these right? Like most of these, poor, it's not. There's nothing special about it. It's not like you're buying a, a uh, you know something that is artisanally made when it comes to the box. Yet, similar to lots of collectibles, whether it be watches or figurines or whatever it is, people want that whole set, which sort of links it more to like a, almost a memorabilia or other that or a collectible world as opposed to. Uh, the financial world. Yeah, great points. I definitely want to get into all the things we need to be careful of. There's like a, a 10 point at least checklist. So folks, we're going to want to write this down. But before we do that, Eric, let's talk about the point system. You spoke about the fact that it, you should use it, but you should be careful about how you use it as well. Folks, anybody not know what the point system is in uh, wine? All right. So tell us what to be careful of. First of all, what you have to understand is the point system is highly subjective. It's one individual or one publication's opinion about the value of something. And as more and more people enter and exit the reviewing and scoring world, it's kind of become dilute. Like one person's 93 is another person's 95 is another person's 89. But what does that mean? Like I like to say as a sommelier, like if you put two wines in front of me and one was a hundred point wine, one was an 89 point wine. And you said, all I want you to do is taste them. Tell me which is a hundred point wine. I wouldn't know how to do that. Cause I don't know what one point tastes like. So how do I know what a hundred points tastes like? But the bigger thing that points can do from an investment standpoint it's sort of like blessing and curse. The blessing is if you have the ability to acquire a highly pointed, you know, 95 plus point wine, then that is going to be a more appealing wine for resale than that same wine, but in a different vintage that maybe didn't score as high. However, since I also do acquisitions for a lot of people, those high scoring wines then cost you more to acquire. I have a client that wanted Screaming <clears throat> Eagle. I'm like, sure. He's like, can I get a hundred point vintage? I was like, yeah. He's like, why is this three times as much per bottle as the 98 point vintage? It's like, because it's a hundred point vintage. So there is a bit of a blessing and a curse with that. And if you can, if you have the opportunity to acquire directly on mailing list or early on before the scores come out, that's when you really have the opportunity to get a win because the moment something is top of any of the top 100 list, top tens, or the moment it gets those high scores, automatically the value of that goes up, but then the cost to acquire goes up as well. You deal a lot on the secondary market, so you yeah. got to keep an eye on that, right? Tell us what to look for on the secondary market where most folks are probably going to start investing or start collecting their wine. Well, in terms of points, I would just, I mean, there are like Canadian ice wines that have a hundred points. I mean, these are not, you know, they're not necessarily, they're not, they're, if, you, if something has high scoring points, it's usually not a, 
a bad thing, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's a good thing. I mean, a great example is DRC, Domenico Romani Conti, by far the most you know, uniformly expensive and investment grade wine in the world. And it doesn't have the greatest points, really. On Thursday, we had an auction. And just to, right off the top of my head, I mean, 2016 Corton from DRC. I mean, it's a bottle of wine we sell for $2,400 a bottle. Uh, you know, it's like 92 points, something like that. So I have a client who decided a number of years ago that he was going to create a fund. And this was a pure investment vehicle. This was wine that he was never seeing. It was going straight into a warehouse, never saw it, never touched it, never opened it, um, based solely on 100-point scores. And it it didn't serve him well because a lot of the, the – he was missing out on wines that didn't have good scores that, that, that have been great investment and ones – uh, that did have good scores that weren't great investment, like that ice wine, for example. You know, there's just not the market for it. But other things to look for in the secondary market other than points? Is that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So in the secondary market, uh, it's a great place. You know, I think what you'll find when you start to buy, especially mature wines, and mature could be anything from 10 to 50 years. If you're buying them oftentimes from retail, a lot of times those retailers bought from auction because um, it's a great place. Uh, you know, traditionally auction was a trade business where the auction houses would sell directly to the trade, the trade would sell on to you. And the auction business is intentionally opaque because they actually want, the trade wanted to keep consumers out. And over the last 15, 20 years, the auction houses have done a lot of work to sort of cut out the middleman and bring the consumer, the end consumer directly to the auction. And by doing that, you're cutting out the middleman's margin. You know, we, we still have clients and some of our biggest clients are buying from us and then selling on and adding up. So if you can cut out that middleman and go straight to auction, there's work involved with that. And what you get for your work is you get the wine at a less price. So it's really up to you if what you want is the convenience of going to a retailer and saying, I want this wine. I want, here's my credit card transaction done. I want 12 bottles. I want it delivered tomorrow done. Or if you want to say, okay, I'm going to go to auction. I'm going to save 15%, but the auction happens in two weeks. I'm going to have to bid on it, which means I'm going to have to come up with a price and so forth. But the things to look for uh, are the same um, regardless of where you're buying wine. What, what is the, the storage of that wine? How has it been stored? Um, what are the conditions of the individual bottles? Uh, when I say conditions, I mean everything from the level of the wine in the bottle, the eulage to the cork condition um, to, you know, sadly, I guess for some of us who love wine, um, the label conditions um, doesn't really affect the taste of the wine in most cases, but label conditions are something very important to think about. I mean, mainly what you want to work towards is the platonic ideal of the pristine bottle that looks like, it, even though it's 25 years old, it looks like it's never been touched or seen or you know looked at by anybody. Carlos, you run a restaurant group. You have a couple of restaurants. You also are a consultant. You're very Correct. steeped in the market. It's super important, just like any asset class, to know which way the market is going. So how do you stay on top of that? You, you stay on top of that, obviously, through your, your channel checks, but also you're feeling that from your customers as well. Where's the market going now and how are you paying attention to it? I mean, definitely reading a lot. It's important, you know, kind of figure out every, every year when the vintage is coming, we kind of keep in touch of what, what's going on in the vineyard. It's so important to go back to the roots of the wine, where the wine comes from, you know, how the years, the winter, the summer... Uh, do we have a hell? The wine is doing well. Uh, winemakers still alive, or things like that has changed. But I think that's one of the things I see. I mean, for me, it, trend is trend. It's going to go up and down. It's going to be a new up and comers. We have to keep looking out for them. But what I do is I work mostly for venture capital. That's what I do. I take care of the private sellers and I stick to blue chip wines, wines that I know are going to increase in value over and over and over. And I recommend that if you want to buy anything, buy it for an auction. You know, I don't think you can buy it cheaper for an auction. But one thing you can do is gonna, you're going to get from an auction. A lot of people are going to take a look at that bottle. 
that bottle will not be missed. You know, you're paying 25, 24% in of premium fees. It's a lot of money, but you know the bottle's going to prestige. Or from people like us, I go into a private seller, I look at it, it's got a million dollars. I, I buy it and I sell it to my clients. The, and that's how, but I go to every single person. And when I have a doubt, I have a resource of knowledgeable people that I can send a video picture and they take a look of it. Let's rip through the biggest mistakes because I want to get to the hot or not list and then let the folks ask some questions here. Don't split a set. Why is that so important, Trump? Don't split a set. It gets back to what I was saying before. I mean, the, it, people want, let's see, you know, why? Why do people want that? I mean, I think it probably comes down to the fact that people like this this uh, contained unit. Uh, th- and for the same reasons that we're talking about, it's just, it's been established that it's it will trade better uh, always. And of course, you, you don't want one bottle. You want to be able to drink one bottle now, one bottle in two years, one bottle in 10 years, one bottle in 15 years. But that's certainly a, that's certainly a rule of thumb. Yeah, don't buy on points. We talked a little bit about this before. Any other points on not buying on points? Well, it all, it all comes back to wine should be fun. If you're not investing in wine for, for fun as well as for potential financial gain, then you're, you're kind of doing it wrong. But at the end of the day, plan that anything you buy, you're going to end up drinking. And if that's the case, you should only be buying things that you want to drink. Because if you cannot find the market for it, if suddenly Burgundy has a backslider or this wine that this new wine that's supposed to be the next thing, but then doesn't turn out to be the next thing or the hundred point Canadian ice wine, which is delicious, by the way, <laughs> doesn't perform uh, on the secondary market. You're a wine lover. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But what you're buying, plan to be able to drink it. And if that is your background ethos, then you'll probably be guided to better investments based on the sheer fact that you're probably buying things that you want to drink. And if you want to drink them, other people probably want to drink them too. Let me make a counterpoint to that, which is you should do that. Say you had a a certain amount of money that you want to invest in wine. You can do that with a portion. Like there's wines and I, you know, I can throw out some names that have just skyrocketed beyond anyone's wildest dreams that are things from Burgundy estates like Domaine Bizo is one or Clos Rougeard from the Loire Valley is another, which like that's a wine that many people might not actually enjoy drinking that wine, but a lot of people do. So maybe take, uh, the amount of mine, wine money that you want to invest, take a portion and say to yourself, like, look, these are, I love these wines. I think they're really great. If they go up in value, that's great. But if they don't, that's fine too. I love them. But then a portion too, and say like, this is the stuff that is just those blue chips that have really a proven, a proven track record. We've yeah. touched on label. We've touched yeah. on box. We've touched on storage. Anything else beyond what's in the bottle that you got to look at if you're considering buying a case, buying a collection? I mean, condition especially when we're talking about acquiring from somebody seller rather than acquiring through a direct source. And especially if we're talking about, Carl's talked about domain, which is a a great resource because they can handle all your logistics and and your inventory and all that. But if you're just constantly sending wine in there, you don't know if there might've been a seepage event, you know, corks are plants, they fail. Even if it's a sealed banded case, if one bottle seeps, not only is that bottle probably not worth anything, but it could affect the labels on other bottles. So don't just put your babies in the dark and forget about them. You know, you, you have to sort of check in on your assets too. Let's end with bourbon. Switch gears a little bit here. Pappy Van Winkle, the high-end bourbon. Is the bourbon bubble still hot or not? Let's start with you because I know you deal a lot uh, with bourbon. Bourbon, bourbon, yes. Pappy, maybe, uh, you know, Pappy is the, the workhorse of the collectible bourbon world. I mean, you're not, you're not going to get rich buying Pappy um, and reselling it. But uh, bourbon is one of those things where you need to be very, very in tune to what is selling and what people are interested in. It's, it's tricky. It's tricky. Any thoughts on bourbon? I, I think, yes, Papi, definitely go for it. If you know your local local places, they got Papi cheap, buy it. That's, yeah, if yes. you're acquiring it at what it should cost, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. not what it yeah. 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 I think yeah. whiskeys in general as a category are hot. A prescient example is Buffalo Trace used to be my well 
whiskey. If you ordered a whiskey and Coke, that's what we were pouring you out of the well because we were paying $12 a bottle for it five years ago. Now, if you fly United, get that little mini bottle of Buffalo <laughs> Trace and you can sell that one serving for $25. <laughs> Well, we just sold a Yamazaki 55-year-old. They just released it. And if you if you were lucky enough to get a bottle through the three-tier system, you know, you were buying it for, I think, 75000 And you can flip it instantly for 700000 So there's definitely there's definitely examples out there. I mean, I think the real lesson is, like, like any investment, there's no shortcuts, really. Yeah, you need yeah. to know the market through and through. All right. Final thing, just because we're talking about something that grows out of the ground in an era of climate change and climate warming, especially through that California region, but go across the world this has become a scarcer and scarcer investment. How much do you think about that as a collector, as a restaurant owner, as a consultant, as a son? Well, it's in our mind all the time now, especially with, I mean, so we have some vintage in Chablis that we got none. None of the white burgundy is going to be available because it didn't, we got anything. So uh, that's why a new, uh, a lot of people from Europe are investing in the United States because we have a little more, Oregon is a great place. A lot of people plant Pinot Noir, they remove Pinot Noir and now plant Chardonnay. Climate is, 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 it's, it's in our mind and, Definitely, definitely something to think about every time you do make an investment or buy any type of wines with futures. So, also, I mean, look, remember at, at the core of it, wine is plant juice. It's like moldy grapes, right? And as the climate warms, structurally things change. Not only does that mean the style of wine changes, but that also means the ageability of that wine changes. Because one of the most important facets of a wine's ability to age, structurally speaking, is acidity. And as things get warmer, natural acidities are reduced. And so stylistically, some of these wines that could have held 30, 40, 50, 60 years, we're now seeing that they're no, potentially no longer able to do that. And I think a Prussian example is if, if you're paying attention to what's just happened in Bordeaux, I don't know if you know, but the French don't really like change on tradition. And they just authorized a dozen varieties, like Portuguese varieties, like Torriga Nacional and, and, other, and, and other like hot climate hardy varieties to be planted maximum 5% in your vineyards. But non-French grapes are now authorized in the vineyards of Bordeaux as a, a first stage of insulation against the effects of climate change so that they can keep those wines ageable. Special thanks there to Charles Enten, Eric Sagothaler, and Carlos Soderzano-Smith for making me smarter about wine investing. Back to that theme about NFTs and wine. That was making some noise around the Food & Wine Classic in Aspen this weekend. And even though NFT tokens have been plunging in value of late amid the downdraft, the concept of putting wine on the blockchain and creating non-fungible tokens to track it from the ground to our glasses is pretty fascinating, especially when we think about wine as an alternative asset. I sat down with the founders of a project called Club Divin, which helps create NFTs for wine, working with vineyards, winemakers, and even celebrity winemakers like Carmelo Anthony of the NBA. Believe it or not, the NBA has a growing number of wine enthusiasts, including Mello, Dwayne Wade, who's retired, CJ McCollum, LeBron James, and Greg Popovich, the coach of the San Antonio Spurs. Here's a bit of my conversation with David Garrett, one of the founders of Club Divin, about how the whole process with NFTs and wine is supposed to work. So the whole thing is really built on um, on some technology that we've developed for the blockchain. Um, the, the most important piece of it, we call the digital cork. And the digital cork is like a digital twin. It's an NFT that is attached to a bottle of wine. So one-on-one basis, one NFT to one bottle of wine. And it performs a bunch of different functions. The most important is the deed of ownership. That bottle belongs to you. So that deed of ownership and that 
can be traded, for example. So if you want to trade that particular bottle of wine, no matter where the bottle itself is, it could be in your cellar, it could be at a bonded warehouse, it could still be at the winery. But if you trade the NFT, then the the ownership benefit trades along with the NFT. So So it's like a digital twin to the bottle of wine or the case of wine that I'm buying, right? Exactly right. So deed of ownership. The second thing it provides is a certificate of authenticity. So it says this bottle came from the winery. So it authenticates that bottle. The third thing it does is it provides a chain of custody. So as that bottle is traded in the aftermarket, you can see who owned the bottle before you. And because of that, it's a real disincentive against fraud or counterfeiting. And then the last thing that the digital cork provides is a royalty back to the winemaker. So as that wine trades in the aftermarket, the winemaker for the first time really gets to participate in the value creation in the aftermarket. So it's really great for the wineries and really great for the industry. Because typically a winery sells its wine to a collector, to a restaurant, or to an individual, and they don't really see that person again. They may have them on the mailing list and be able to say, hey, we have a new, uh, a new brand coming out, we have a new uh, year coming out, a new vintage coming out, but they don't have that digital touch point forever. Does this help them with that? Yeah, for sure. So it gives them, lets them see where their wines are in the market. It lets them see when those wines get get traded and at what price, and then they participate in that economic value. And then the really kind of cool piece that we've developed is the is another NFT called the tasting token, because, you know, the wine might be out there for 15 years. It might be traded three or four times. It might go from $100 X seller to $800 by the time the final consumer buys it. And that's all really good benefit for the, for the winery. But at some point, somebody's going to open that bottle, right? You're going to drink the wine. So what we've developed is a really interesting piece of the technology where if you have that digital twin, that NFT in your wallet, then when you open the physical bottle, you can pull the digital cork. And when you pull the digital cork, that's a, what you do on, the, on, the, on our platform, it does a couple of things, right? The first thing that it does is it takes that original certificate of authenticity and nullifies it. It says this bottle's been opened. It's no longer authentic. There's one less of those bottles available on the market, right? The second thing it does is it gives the owner the ability to mint new NFTs, Now, we call those NFTs tasting tokens, but really what it is, is it's the Web3 version of taking a picture of the label and posting it to Instagram. But it provides a lot of really great utility on top of that. So the first thing is, obviously, it gives you a a record of all of the great wines that you've drank, right? Not only is it a little bit more beautiful than your you know, standard picture of the label, but it also gives you all the metadata, where the wine comes from, the appellation, the varietals, oak program, all of that stuff. So you can visualize or share your tasting journey with your friends, right? So you get a, you get a way to, to really look at your tasting journey. So it's a, it's a community builder in that respect, but it also gives you a ton of data as the wine drinker, and it gives the vineyard a ton of data on who's drinking it, who they've passed it on to, right? This is a way to really collect, share all that data through the blockchain. That's exactly right. So it gives the, the winemaker the ability to be in contact with the consumer at the moment of consumption. And that can be as simple as saying, hey, you, we see that you opened our wine. Hope that you enjoyed it. What did you pair it with? You know, hope it's showing really well. But more than that, they could say, hey, look, if you collect five of those tasting tokens, so five tokens from five different wines, maybe we'll invite you to a winemaker dinner. 
Or if you collect 10 tasting tokens, maybe we'll invite you to the winery for a vertical tasting. And what we see in the future is the ability for the winemaker to really not only build community around all of their biggest fans, but also really start to shape the culture um, and turn wine instead of being just a product into an experience, which is why we think it's the platform for the for the next generation of wine consumers. When folks hear NFT, they think, oh, that might be something that somebody's trying to trade. And it is, but it's also this token that has all of this information in it. But give me a sense of how folks who try to trade digital currencies and non-fungible tokens might try to trade something like this. Is it Does it have any tradable value? No, actually. And more importantly, we've created the contract for, for tasting tokens so that they're not tradable. You can't trade them. As for those NBA players, several of them were in Aspen this weekend as well, including Dwayne Wade, Carmelo Anthony, and CJ McCollum. Full disclosure, I like professional basketball, and I'm a big fan of these players. What's interesting about all of them is that they're not just into wine. They are into the wine business. All own their own wine labels, and all of them are not using their celebrity athlete status to promote and sell their wines. It helps that they're famous and widely followed, to be sure, but they all are approaching this investment in making wine as building legacy businesses, but also to make the wine industry more inclusive to their communities, the communities they grew up in. These guys are trying to change that, and they take this mission and their wine very seriously. Here's a few minutes from a seminar with Carmelo Anthony and CJ McCollum, hosted by DSMs. I took my time with it. I didn't rush it. I took my time to educate myself, not just on the wine, not just on Stefano Celio, but also the art of winemaking and, and, and going in and talking to the farmers and seeing them and, and really understanding what it really takes to make a good wine, but to make a great wine yeah. or just to make wine in general. And I think we we don't show the farmers enough appreciation. Totally. Uh, I don't think they get enough enough shine on what they do. And which is why that's what the seventh estate is. We want to bring more awareness to these winemakers, specifically winemakers of color as well. So we want to keep this all inclusive. Right. We, we want more awareness to winemakers of color, to the, to the not winemakers, to the farmers. Right, right, and, right. And, and to the to the brands because it's it's a lot of us out there that we don't even know, and I think what we did this weekend by bringing all of us together, bringing our community here to food and wine, you really got an understanding of how powerful we are. Absolutely, and it's not about me competing with CJ. I'm not in the same lane with CJ. CJ is in 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 Willamette Valley. He's in he's in Oregon. I'm in Chattanooga Pop. But whatever I can do to support him as a brother, as a friend as an ex-teammate, and as a, as a current winemaker, right? Yes. You're a farmer now, so don't, don't worry about that. But anything that we can do to support each other, yeah. I think we need to do that. And uh, that's what 7th Estate is about. No, that's incredible. And listen, the, the reality is growth of opportunity is growth for the industry, right? And I think sometimes people hear diversity and think it's a game of musical chairs, right? But when you're doing it right, it's really about building a bigger table. And I know that's what they both stand for. Let's stay on on talking about the farm piece, right? So, so CJ, you know, I understand your family just recently acquired over 300 acres of farmland. This was something that when I was doing my prep to meet you two fine gentlemen, re- really stuck with me um, because just a quick stat that I hope will help ground your, your response is that in, in America, um, just so we know where we are, right, the average white American is worth 13 times what the average black American is today. When you pull out business owners, that multiple drops to 3x. When you go down, you click down even further, the average black American who owns anything at all is typically worth 12 times what a black American owns anything. So when I saw you said, look, we are going to own this farmland, that is actually 
really kind of the most underutilized tool when you talk about diversity. So I'm so proud to see that. I'd love to hear more about that journey. Yeah, that, that was an incredible journey in which I learned a lot. I had some really good good arguments with my accountant. It's uh, <laughs> a lot of back and forth. But when it came down to it, I kind of told him what I wanted to accomplish, what my family wanted to accomplish as a whole. And equity is something we're big on. Land ownership is something we're big on. And I joke all the time, like my son's five months. He has no idea what he's going to inherit. And I just hope that he truly appreciates and understands what went into this. And he gets to reap and receive the benefits from it. But I think all in all, it was me jumping into a space, right? Figuring out the education uh, component as a businessman, as a guy who's involved in a lot of businesses, I understand the risk. I know the jokes and the jokes are accurate um, in terms of, you know, you want to make a million, spend 10. Um, not as accurate, but it's, it's close at times. I'm just kidding. But no, I think the moral of the story is we wanted to to carve out a space and a place that we could share with others, that we could expose our families to, that we could expose other families to, to where they can see representation being a huge factor in me playing basketball, me, me majoring in journalism because of Stuart Scott, and all of those things I've been able to experience now. I want people to be able to look up and say, look, not only did he play a sport, he did all these things, but he was really invested in the wine business, not just what do you call it? Tootsie footing around it. Like he jumped all the way in. I got to say their wine is pretty good. Carmelo Anthony has been in the NBA for 19 seasons. He's a nine-time All-Star and the seventh leading scorer in history. He could attach his name and likeness to anything and make tens of million dollars in endorsements, but he doesn't do that anymore. He builds businesses, a production company. He's got a great podcast called What's in Your Glass, and he has a wine empire called The Seventh Estate. CJ McCollum is just 30 years old. He's been in the league nine years, mostly with the Portland Trailblazers, but now he plays with the New Orleans Pelicans. He's just building up his business empire and learning to spread his investments across channels to create legacy wealth. I caught up with CJ and Aspen for a few minutes, and here's part of that conversation. I'm sitting here with CJ McCollum, NBA veteran, president of the NBA Players Association, but you have a passion for wine. You have a passion for entrepreneurship. What got you here? What brought you into this passion? I think the biggest thing was understanding uh, this was a a space in which it brought me happiness, it brought me peace, it brought me clarity. Being able to go drink at different vineyards and understanding the type of moments that I was able to create through wine. I wanted to share it with my family, I wanted to share it with my friends and felt like it was something that wasn't as approachable in the communities that I grew up in and it wasn't it still ha- isn't as approachable as it should be, in, in my humble opinion. But I think that's those are the things that attracted me to it, besides the fact that wine is just an amazing fruit that you can enjoy in, in any under any circumstance. It is a community builder, brings people together. You talk about the sharing aspect. You're an investor, but you're really an entrepreneur here. You're not investing necessarily in wine. You're investing in the business and the legacy of the business. Why is that important? I think the legacy is everything. That's kind of what I've shaped my life around, figuring out how I can leave an impactful legacy, figuring out how I can uh, make the world a better place, make the wine space a better place and make it more diverse and inclusive. And I think I've enjoyed everything that I've learned about wine to this point. Obviously, it's a huge world. There's so many different varietals. There's so many different countries that I'm going to have to visit in order to, to partake. But all in all, this is, a, this is a great thing. And I think it's something that I want all my family, I want all my friends, I want all people to be uh, more aware of, but also more comfortable trying. Right. And it's also a lesson in entrepreneurship. These things are never any. You can never learn enough about wine. You can never learn enough about running a business. But you're also building legacy and you're building a, basically a business around yourself and for your family. Why is that so critical to you? That's, that's critical because I, I believe in passing down the right things, passing down ownership, having equity, having ownership and being able to operate in a manner in which you kind of control the success and failure of a business. I want to be able to control who's hired. I want to be able to control what type of grapes are planted. I want to be able to control everything. And I think 
being in a position of ownership, it comes, it comes with responsibilities, it comes with obligations, and I want to make sure I'm delivering, but also leaving something that my family can be proud of. You've been in the NBA several years, nine years or so. You came out of Lehigh. You're a journalism major like me, but how important is it to learn the financial literacy, financial education for young athletes, especially coming into their first contracts, their first deals? It's vital. It's extremely important. There's just no class that teaches you, you know, how to hire people, how to budget properly, how to manage this type of money. And I think it's important that we teach people early. We teach our kids early and we teach them in college on the importance of investing, the importance on saving money, the importance of understanding tax structure, how much money is going to Uncle Sam, how much money is going home, and it's creating a pathway for people to be able to succeed long term. Right. We're an investing site built on a lot of our investing terms. What investing or business term is important to you? What's the one that kind of rings in your head that makes a lot of sense to you that you have a passion for? In, in terms of investing, I, I think I've started to learn a lot more about real estate. You know, you, you've invest, I've invested in a lot of different realms, a lot of different fields. But one thing's for certain, there's only so much land that will ever be here. And if you can get the right land and, and build on the right land, you have a legacy play, a legacy project, which you can also influence many different people's lives. Uh, and lastly, you did buy a farm. So you're not just putting your name on a label. You actually bought a farm. You have a business here. Why did you, why did you want to bring all of these assets together sort of under the domain of what you're trying to do here? I think it's just about the maturation process of me as a human being, learning about real estate, learning about farming, learning about the importance of wine and what that's meant to me and my family, and being able to share that with other people. And I think ownership is the, the next step in, in that and being able to create you know, a certain type of wine that has a certain type of taste and being able to create a, a business infrastructure that's built around diversity, is built around inclusion, is built around opportunity. I think all those things were important to me. CJ is a really interesting guy and someone to keep an eye on as he continues to build his business legacy along with his wife, who introduced him to wine in the first place. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from Andy Lushman, a listener who reached out to us via email and might live in Switzerland if the internet is to be believed. Andy suggests SEC yield, and we like that suggestion because it is a widely overlooked but pretty important term. Well, according to my favorite website, the SEC yield is a standard yield calculation developed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission in 1988 to allow for fairer comparisons of bond funds. It is based on the most recent 30-day period covered by the fund's filings with the SEC, and the yield figure reflects the dividends and interest earned during the period after the deduction of the fund's expenses. It's also referred to as the standardized yield. When every penny counts, it's important to know which yield to heed. Good suggestion, Andy. Email us or DM us with your mailing address in those beautiful Alps, and we'll send you some of Investopedia's finest socks for your next hike with your lovely-looking dog. From those Alps to the Rockies, the Express keeps rolling on. Special thanks to the great folks at Food & Wine for having me in Aspen this weekend. What a great team and what a great publication. Check out the latest issue of Food & Wine online or wherever you get your magazines. It's the Game Changers issue, and there are some amazing people in the food and wine industry doing incredible things with their craft and in their communities. That was a lot of fun and a lot of wine. Cheers to all of you, and we'll talk again a little further on down the line.